Good morning. Welcome all to Peace this Advent season. We have the inside all decorated. We set that up yesterday. We have an Advent candle. We have the Christmas tree. And the weather outside did not cooperate. It is like springtime out there. So we will just have to pretend that it's snowing and, you know, we'll have to pretend. I'm sure it'll be, I'm sure it'll be back next week. Um, yeah, this is, this is one of my favorite times of year. Um, there's, there's a reason for that. I have a distinctive memory in my head. I used to work, uh, I haven't always been a pastor, I used to work swing shift at the Dow Chemical Company up in Midland as I was finishing up school. So I'd work days, afternoons, and midnights. It was literally a blue-collar job, like I had to wear the blue flame retardant Nomex. Um, and we, we worked in a warehouse. I worked packaging things. And in our warehouse, like you'll find in many warehouses, we had a radio. And that radio, like in many warehouses in Michigan, was turned to a country music station most of the time. Not when I was working. I, don't, I can't do country. Uh, but my, the guy who, is, who I was relieving, who was working before me, was listening to the country music station. But this time, it was, it was, it was in December. It was the Christmas season. And so this country music station, I think it was just 94.5, they were playing Christmas music. And I have this distinct memory of walking into work in order, to, in order to relieve the guy who was working the previous shift, and hearing these words come from a secular radio station. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. It's the third verse of Hark the herald angels sing. It's, it's a song, it's lyrics that so eloquently put the gospel into music. And at Christmas time, that just sort of becomes part of our nat- national consciousness. You can turn on a secular radio station and you can hear the gospel proclaimed. And it's an absolutely beautiful thing. It's this time of year, yes, we come together, and yes, not everyone celebrates the Christmas season like us Christians celebrate it. Yes, there is Santa Claus and and all of that other stuff and the commercialization. But at the core of this holiday, and this is broadly recognized, is Jesus Christ. And I think it's a beautiful thing to set aside a time of year for Jesus to think about his coming. That's why we've decorated the church. That's why we have the Advent wreath and the Advent candles. And that's why for the next several weeks, we're going to be going through a sermon series looking at Advent. The word Advent really just means a coming. God has come in order to be with us. And what I wanted to do for this time of year, where Whereas for the past several weeks, we've been diving into specific psalms and looking at them. I want to zoom way out, look at the story of Scripture, and just see all the ways in which God has come throughout that story. This week is really going to serve as an introduction. We're going to look at some things about the character of God, and then we're going to look at the very beginning of our story, just to sort of get the ball rolling, as in the coming weeks, we look at all the ways in which God has come down to be with us. For those of you who have kids, and or if you don't have kids, if you have just been a kid in the past, like I have been a kid in the past, you may be very familiar 
with the question, why? Go clean your room. Why? And if you, if you indulge a child, at least if you had indulged me, you would have gotten into some very metaphysical questions very, very quickly. Ultimately, though, if you go all the way back asking the question why, you have to get somewhere. There has to be a first reason for everything. There has to be a first cause for everything. If, you, if you're a naturalist, if you kind of reject the whole Christian faith, maybe that whole cause for you is the Big Bang. That explains everything, right? That's the, that's the beginning point. But even if you're a naturalist, that doesn't answer the question of where the laws of physics came from, of where matter came from. There has to be something to explain where everything came from, why anything happens, why the matter in the universe obeys the laws of physics, why that matter even exists in the first place. Why is there something instead of nothing? And the answer to that question comes in the very first verse of the Bible. It's a, it's a verse that we often look right past. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This verse immediately puts things into two categories. There's the heavens and the earth, and then there's God. God created the heavens and the earth. There's a fancy word that I want us to learn, but that word is God is transcendent. The word transcendent means that God is above everything. Right? When we ask the question why and we go back and back and back, there has to be something that didn't have a cause. God didn't have anything that caused him to come into being. God just is. All of us, we are on the other side of that God created the heavens and the earth equation. We have God and then we have everything else. The heavens and the earth had a beginning. The heavens and the earth are limited. We, as people who were created, we as people who live in the heavens and the earth, have needs, right? When you woke up this morning, you had breakfast. If you didn't have breakfast, hopefully at least you're going to have lunch when you get out of church today. If we don't eat, if we don't have breakfast or lunch, we die. We can maybe go a few weeks without eating. We can maybe go a few days without drinking water. Maybe we can go a few minutes without air. But we inherently need things. God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need to eat to stay alive. God just is. We all had a beginning. We all were conceived. We were all brought into this world at a certain point in time. There was a time when we were not. But that's not the case with God. God just always has been. He's made of really entirely different stuff than you and I. God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke them into existence out of nothing. He came from nowhere. He just always has been. Everything else had a beginning. God is above all things. He is over all things. He is greater than all things. And the fancy theological word for that is transcendence. God is transcendent. There's another word that kind of goes opposite God is transcendent, and that word is imminent. God is imminent. That doesn't mean, you know, God is about to happen. That's imminent with an E. This is imminent with an A. What this word means is kind of the opposite of transcendent. Yes, God is above all things, but God is also really, really involved 
in all things. He really gets down and dirty into his creation. In Colossians 1 verse 17, the Bible says that he, that's the Son, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, God didn't just create the world. He's holding it together. And the picture there, the idea there, is that if God stopped holding everything together, it would fly apart. See, we exist not only because God created us way back when, but we exist because God still holds this universe together by his power. It's not as though God set a clock a long time ago and he's just let it tick for however many, long, however many years the earth has been around. God still holds the thing together. God is involved in his creation. He is imminent. Another way that we see how God is imminent or involved in his creation is in Genesis chapter 2, when God comes down in order to create a relationship with Adam and Eve. Right? The story of Adam and Eve, I hope, is familiar to many of us. God created the heavens and the earth. He created the Garden of Eden. He created this perfect paradise that the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, were supposed to live in forever in perfect fellowship with God. And when God was coming down in order to make a relationship with them, he said these words to them. This is from Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. A lot of the time when we read this, we focus on the prohibition here, right? God says, hey, you can't do that. That's because if, spoilers, if you go ahead and read chapter 3, we find out that Adam and Eve actually do eat of that fruit and they rebel. But contained in this really is a promise to Adam and Eve. If we take it the other way, God tells Adam and Eve, as long as you keep the garden as I command you, you will have long life. You will have eternal life. You can eat of the tree of life as much as you want to. You can have eternal life. You can have an eternal relationship with me. Those are the terms that God presents to Adam and Eve. Just keep my commandments and you can have eternal life. Just keep my commandments and you can have perfect, loving fellowship with me, your creator. You see, we, we know that God is transcendent, but he doesn't stay way up there. God could have created in earth. God could have created the heavens and the earth and people along with it and never reveal himself to us. You ever think about that? That's a possibility. God could have created everything and never stretched across that great divide from the infinite to the finite, from the eternal to the temporal. He didn't have to make himself known, but he did. He came down to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden so that he could have a relationship with them. And that is God's intention for humanity. The Bible really should have been a really short book. Adam and Eve should have kept God's commandments. They should have been fruitful and multiply. There should have never been any pain in childbirth. There should have never been any severing of relationship there. They should have just kept their healthy distance from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They should have enjoyed all of the other fruit that God has prepared for them. They should have eaten of the tree of life as often as they wanted to and enjoyed God's perfect fellowship and enjoyed immortality in relationship with God. But that's not what happened. 
Something happened in Genesis chapter 3 that really sets up the entire story of Scripture. Adam and Eve fell. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. We know the story well, most of us, I'm sure. Adam and Eve eat of the fruit that is forbidden. The snake comes to them and says, hey, did God really say this? And he offers it to them. And of course, God actually did say that they couldn't eat of that. But they do anyway. They fail, to, they fail to keep the garden free from outside pollution as they should have. They failed to do what God had commanded them to do. They ate of the forbidden fruit, and they fell. And in that moment, something cataclysmic happened. Something broke in the way the universe works. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans puts it this way in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all people have sinned. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, when they ate of that fruit, something terrible happened. All of their descendants after them were born with something that theologians call original sin. There's something in our hearts that just naturally turns away from God. That is the way every single one of us are born. As often as we like to dress it up and pretend that we are good people, at the very heart of us, at the very core of us, there's something wrong. Left to our own devices, we are going to turn our backs on God. Left to our own devices, we are going to pursue selfish things. Left to our own devices, we are going to do wrong. We need outside intervention if we are ever going to have any hope. See, all of us are born sinful because of Adam and Eve's sin. And because we are all born sinful and death always follows sin, death came into the world. And so because of Adam and Eve's choice, we live in a world full of death and despair and suffering. Another way the Apostle Paul puts that is in Romans chapter 8. He writes, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. So we know that because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are sinful. But that wasn't the only thing that broke. That wasn't the only thing that changed. Creation itself, what God has created, the heavens and the earth, it stopped working like it's supposed to. So we live in a world with natural disasters. We live in a world with disease. We live in a world with misunderstandings. We live in an imperfect world. And according to scripture, creation itself cries out. Creation itself groans for redemption. Creation longs to be fixed. So because of Adam and Eve's sin, a gulf has opened up. God has come down to be in relationship with Adam and Eve. But when they rebelled against him, there were consequences. They lost their fellowship with God. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They couldn't eat any longer of the tree of life. There was an angel in the way with a flaming sword. They were cut off from the very presence of God. And there is a possibility, an alternate universe, if you will, where that's as long as the Bible is. There's three chapters. God comes down to be in relationship with humanity. Humanity sins. They reject God. And that's it. We have, we've had our chance. God's just going to wipe us out and try again with something else. That could have happened. That doesn't happen. 
Instead, we have chapters and chapters and books and books of how God works to restore that relationship with his people. God has instituted a plan to bring his people back. We see this right at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 when God is coming down to them. Scripture says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Pay attention to this. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Adam and Eve hid from God. They wanted nothing to do with God and their shame and their guilt. They feared God. They wondered if he would come after them. But God comes up, he calls out to them, where are you? God comes after them, not in order to levy punishment on them, although he does. But God pursues Adam and Eve in order to bring them back into a relationship with him. Where are you? Why are you hiding? What have you done? And Genesis 3 is full of the results of sin. It talks about pain and childbirth. It talks about how work, which was previously a, um, a noble thing to do, becomes a dreaded thing to do. There's all, sorts of, there's, all sorts of, um, there's all sorts of curses throughout the book, or throughout Genesis chapter 3. But there's one that stands out, and in the middle of this curse is a promise. It's just sort of like a little seed of a promise that we can look at and hold on to. And as, the, as scripture goes on, we see how that little seed blossoms into a great, big, beautiful promise. But that little seed is this. It's part of the curses. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the snake here, the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve, the devil. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And then there's this little phrase, and it's so cryptic. But it says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You will strike, or he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. If you were there, if you were Adam and Eve sitting in the garden, and you heard that little bit of promise, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel, what would you think that meant? Without any, without any knowledge of what comes on in the Bible, without anything else, if you were Adam and Eve, you overheard this curse to the serpent, what would you think? It's an interesting question, right? You certainly wouldn't expect the story that the Bible lays out. Perhaps you would have thought when Abel is born, right, Adam and Eve's first child, that in some way that child is going to reverse the curse. Right? But Abel, as we know, didn't last very long. He was killed by his brother Cain. Perhaps they thought when Seth was born, who is going to be this, this restored person uh, who's going to carry their line forward because Abel was killed and Cain was cursed, maybe Seth was going to somehow reverse the curse. But Seth didn't reverse that curse. We know that one of Adam and Eve's descendants, however, did. That curse is not left in place forever. But Jesus Christ, one of Adam and Eve's descendants, was going to be the one to overthrow the curse that Adam and Eve brought on humanity. And that cryptic phrase, he will crush your head, you will strike his heel. The picture there is of a snake biting the heel of a human being. But only because that human being stomping down on his head. So there's a wound that that human being feels. There's a wound that that human suffers in the process of killing the snake. 
And with the benefit of the hindsight of history, we see that that human being, that descendant, that promised offspring is Jesus Christ. He suffered a wound on the cross. He was mortally wounded, but he rose again from the dead. It did not defeat him, but the cross did defeat the devil. The death blow has been struck to Satan. And in Genesis chapter 3, we find this very, very first promise. That yes, Adam and Eve fell. Adam and Eve rebelled against that God. They threw off their relationship with him. They chose their sin over a relationship with God. But God pursues people. The story of the Bible is the story of God pursuing a people to enter into a relationship with him. The story of the Bible is the story of God pursuing a people to enter into a relationship with him. God comes after humanity in order to draw them to himself. We'll see that next week. We'll see that the week after that. God does not leave us alone in our sins. God comes after us because he wants a relationship with us. He wants to remove the barrier of sin from our lives. He wants to have that fellowship that he intended for us to have way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And we'll see in a few weeks that the coming of Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of that story. As God pursues his people, and we see throughout the Old Testament the various ways which God comes down to us, the coming of Jesus Christ is the ultimate peak of that story. It's the pinnacle. God is transcendent, right? He is above all things, but God is involved in his creation. He is imminent, and those two, they're not, they're not mutually exclusive, but they're kind of opposites. And we see that in no greater way than in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God himself, come down to be human flesh, to suffer and die on the cross for us. God has been made low. Emmanuel has come to be with us. And scripture is that story. I don't know where you all are today with your relationship with God. But know this. Whether you're close to God, whether you're far from God, know this. God has come to pursue you. As the Apostle James puts it, he says, Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Seek God and he will be found because God wants to be in a relationship with us. Come to God, fall at the feet of the cross, repent of your sin, and God will graciously forgive them. God will be found. Let's pray.